Welcome to the Scripts and Scribes podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Fukunaga, and today we welcome back to the show writer, producer, president, and COO of Top Cow, Mr. Matt Hawkins. Thanks for coming on again, Matt. Oh, thanks for having me uh, once again. Um, and you're officially the first guest that we've had back on the show, so that's sort of a celebratory thing. I think this is our 49th episode, and you're the first one we've had back, so that's awesome. Well, I, I feel honored, or you just ran out of people that were willing to do it. No. So uh, either, one, either one I'll take it. You know, we're, we're fortunate to have a, a long list of people that are going to be coming on after this. So, um, But uh, yeah, no, it's, it's great, so thanks for coming on. And actually, talking about honors, um, your new book, Tales of Honor, comes out uh, Wednesday the 5th, March 5th. Um, and I know it's based on a best-selling uh, series of sci-fi novels by David Weber called Honor Harrington, and it's your comic sort of kicks off this sort of planned media blitz, like from what I understand, like games, TV, a, a feature film, all that kind of stuff. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about how that came about and what that involves. Yeah, we. Uh, I, I didn't realize this at the time when I got roped into doing it, but yeah, <laughs> we're the tip of the spear of this whole uh, sort of media blitz. Uh, the company Evergreen Studios is the company that was behind uh, Walking with Dinosaurs. Mm-hmm. And uh, Scott Krupp, who's the main sort of producer film guy there, is doing a ton of stuff. He worked on some of the uh, oh, some of those Ben Diesel films. He worked on The Last Samurai. So he, he's, he's an inside Hollywood guy. Right. And uh, he uh, he and Rich, Richard Brown, who's a video game guy, uh, tracked me down. Uh, they had read uh, Aphrodite 9 at Think Tank and said uh, – you know, the thing with these Honor Harrington novels is they have sort of uh, a unique thing that has a lot of science to it. And so they said, hey, this guy's doing this sciencey shit. Let's uh, see if this guy would be interested in writing these books. So Rich Brown reached out to me through a, a mutual uh, acquaintance. And uh, I came in just, just curious more than anything because the film people and they were talking about doing a movie. Uh, but I, I even before I went in, I even told him on the phone, I said, I don't really do this kind of work for hire work. You know, it's not my bag. I develop my own stuff. Da, 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 da. And uh, he just said, that I, he said, hey, I'm going to give you the first novel. Here it is. Take it home over the weekend. Read it. So I think the meeting was like on a Friday. And uh, and I did. I took the uh, first Honor Harrington novel home, the On Basilisk Station. Um, and I started reading it. And uh, the interesting thing for me is this book came out, I think, in 92 or 93. And it sort of missed my uh, prime sci-fi reading years, which were my high school and college years. Um, I, it came out right as I was graduating and getting into the workforce. Mm-hmm. And so for me, I was working my ass off, and I, I didn't read as much in my early to mid-20s. Uh, and I was getting into comics and so on, so I was really, really busy. So I missed this entire uh, thing. I didn't even know what it was. And when I started doing the research, I realized, huh, this is a big thing. It's got kind of a Piers Anthony level following, you know, like the Zant right. novels that when I was a kid. Right. And uh, I read the first book, and I really liked it. I got to tell you, the uh, the thing that always, that really struck me about it, because there's so many space opera science fiction books, this is the first one that I thought really took a realistic approach to what was space combat really like. Right. I mean, these ships they won't see each other. They're going to be hundreds of thousands of kilometers apart. They're shooting shit at each other from long distances. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, they've got sort of the unique, and, 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 the, and they use inertia. And I, it's one of the things that always drove me nuts with uh, Star Trek and Star Wars and all these things about how these giant ships going the speed of light could just stop on a fucking dime. Right. You know, and I, I always was like, uh, and then Star Trek had these great things called inertial dampeners, you know, and it's sort of this pseudoscience that sort of made it work. But, uh, you know, I, in the back of my head, I always kind of rolled my eyes, you know. Um, and when I read that, I mean, he really, 
gave a shot at trying to make it seem like physically possible where there's some real physics to it. I mean, I know it's silly because it's four or 500 years in the future. We won't even know like if there's any of this shit or, or how, how far we're going to be in, in anything. But right. I, I was sort of captivated by it. Um, I thought he created an interesting character. Um, and then, so I went in uh, Monday morning and met with them again and, and told them I was in, which was weird for me because uh, I was so adamantly opposed to it. I honestly went to the meeting and went into that more of a curiosity just to kind of see what they were doing. Right. And, uh, you know, and I came out of it with the gig and uh, they did a good sales job on me. And then uh, the interesting part was, um, and this was the hard part for me, was, was working their 18 novels. This is a massive universe. And uh, it's very difficult for me after reading those novels. How do you break these stories down and how do you use it? Because you don't have you know, 30 pages of exposition that you can do in a row to set stuff up like they do in novels, right. you know, I mean, it's a whole, whole different world. I mean, if I had 30 pages of exposition, it'd be an issue and no one would read it ever again. It sort of, it, it became this, and the, the hardest thing was they never visualized any of it. They were doing development early previs for the films. They just started initially doing some character designs, uh, had some actors and actresses they thought the characters might look like. And they had a few ship designs and stuff like that. And they had an idea of kind of what they wanted. So what it ended up being is the comic book has been sort of uh, the rough draft template of what they want to visualize this world as. And that's that's been kind of cool. It, it's been a, a, very much a learning experience for me to work with basically previous film people, mm-hmm. uh, special effects people, because I've been working with Blur Studio and, and so many people that are doing a lot of these ship designs um, and some of these alien designs. And, uh, but it's also, it's also very frustrating because I, you know, on some level it's like having, you know, you're trying to make it work for the hardcore fan base, but you're also trying to make it accessible to people that have never heard of it before. Right. You know, I mean, there's always that situation. Like if you've never watched Star Trek in your life, are you going to go see one of these new movies? Maybe, maybe not. I mean, is it penetratable? Can you penetrate this? You know, do you feel like you can go and get in on this and have any fucking idea what's going on? Right. So... We sort of, uh, that was very hard for me. I read all the books, which, you know, there's 18 or 19 of them, and uh, really thought about it. I met with the uh, the creator and the author of the books. And see, this was also really, you know, this was the first time anyone had visualized his thing either. So, I mean, and I know how that would be for me. I can imagine, you know, I'm kind of precious of some of my characters, mm-hmm. you know, like Lady Pendragon and Think Tank. I wouldn't really want other people writing those characters. So I can right. imagine that this guy's like looking at me like, What's this guy gonna do to my kids? You know, so. But it was uh, it was it was an interesting experience. I've actually learned quite a bit working with them. One of the things I've come to realize is, uh, you know, when you're doing a job for someone else, you got to be a professional and realize that ultimately that is what you're doing. You're, they're paying you to do something and to do it the way they want, mm-hmm. uh, and that may actually not be what you think is the best idea. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? For whatever reason, and I think that's uh, you know. I mean, that's, that's sometimes a, a tough, tough nut to swallow. Um, but, uh, oh, I'm very proud of the book. I mean, I'm not, I'm not trying to say there's anything in there that I would have radically changed. But there was a couple of things I was going in a slightly different direction, and they said, oh, we need to change this for this reason. We need to do this for this reason. And their reasons made total sense. Um, but uh, for me, it was frustrating because I'm so used to writing career-owned stuff that I can just do whatever the fuck I want. Right. You know what I mean? I mean, there's no one. I mean, I have editors that tell me this makes no sense. But if I want to do X, Y, or Z, I just do it. You know what I mean? I mean, right. it's just for me, and that freedom is one of the reasons why I write comics and why I'm not a TV writer or, you know, involved in some of these other businesses where you do make maybe more money, but with less control. Sure. So, 
Um, yeah, I, I, that's a long-winded answer, but uh, ultimately, I'm very proud of the book. I mean, the book itself, finally, at the end of the day, when it came out, um, it's interesting. I mean, it, it starts, it's not a direct adaptation of the novel. It's in that universe. It deals with the storylines in the universe. The idea is in the seventh novel, she's uh, in danger, she's captured and in danger of being executed. And uh, they, she so is in, in chains. And so I start the book there and when she's sort of narrating in her mind, she's going, she, she thinks she's going to die. So, um, she starts going through her mind about her life and starts thinking about things. Not one of those life flashing before her eyes, but she's basically hanging in this cell for an interminable amount of time. Mm-hmm. So she's sort of just sifting through her own thoughts and memories. And, 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 uh, and so we're telling the story from that. So it allows me a little bit of latitude because it's, it's her remembering things from her own perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, she's under duress. So if you know if it doesn't match entirely the novels, we have some sort of uh, excuse, and it's 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 nearly impossible. The one thing about uh, the David Weber books is he has so many characters. I mean, I mean there there are hundreds of characters in every book. It seems mm-hmm. like I mean I might be exaggerating, but it, it, it really <laughs> does seem like he creates hundreds and hundreds of characters. Right. And every time he creates, a, you introduce a new character, he spends pages and pages explaining who this guy is and why he matters. And then sometimes he kills the guy on the next page, which is interesting. <laughs> But, uh, you know, I mean, that's just, you can't do that really in comics because we have sort of compressed, you know, storytelling. Sure, sure. Um, and only so much room. So, um, and, you know, I'm trying to tell these arcs in like five issue graphic novel arcs. Um, and I'm trying to tell most of the on Basilisk Station arc in, in five issues. And if I was going to do a literal adaptation of the novel, it'd probably be 13, 12. I, I, I did a, just a general breakdown. And I said, you know, you can do this this way. You can do it as a straight adaptation. It'd be like 13 issues long. Or you could do that this way. It could be fine. And so they're paying for it. This isn't a license. You know, they actually hired us. Mm-hmm. So uh, kind of a uh, hired hired studio kind of deal. And uh, it's been fun. I'm, I'm actually, you know, I'm really glad I did it. Very cool. Um, but I wanted to ask, how, how many epi- episodes, issues, I should say, how many issues is the comic and how many of the novels, like, did you use all 18, 19 of these novels and sort of take bits from each of them to make the series that you're writing? Or is it like the first novel or two and you took those two at the beginning of it and then you're telling the story from that point on? Well, and I'm telling a story from uh, basically the perspective of the seventh novel where okay. she's looking back over her her life of the first six novels. I'm okay. not telling it novel by novel, so it's not sure. like a... You know, even though the first arc of the five books is called, I'm calling it On Basilisk Station, which is basically the first novel. Right. And it, it is it is basically that plot. Now, I've had to streamline it enormously because you sure. can't have all those subplots running in a five-issue comic series that you do in a, you know, a 500-page novel. Um, so it's uh, it, it's been a process, i got to tell you. <laughs> it, it was a hell of a lot harder than I thought it was going to be. Um because well, it's so much way, different than taking a novel and turning <laughs> it into a comic series. You have material from, you know, 1819 and I'm I'm not sure how much you took from each one. It may have just been something tiny, but uh, that seems like a lot of no, material it, to filter through. There is a lot of material and uh, I I think it also the character kind of evolved over time where mm-hmm. I think I really felt like he came into his own as a writer of this character in the middle of the third novel. I gotcha. And I think, you know, so I'm not, the first two novels are great. I'm just saying the character itself sort of becomes clear to me in the middle of the third novel. 
And so it's, it's nice to be able to just start that way. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, when you're writing a series, I mean, I, I could say the same thing about everything I've written. If you look at the third volume of Think Tank, the character makes more sense to me than the first volume, sure. you know, because he's, right, it's a deeper character. There's more, you're more involved in it. You learn from doing it. Right. Um, but, uh, no, it's, uh, it, it's a fascinating process. And for me, the books are, uh, the books are a separate animal, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff we're going to skip from the books, but the basic plots of the books, uh, the idea right now is the first five issues, which we'll collect as the first graphic novel okay. will be on Maskless Station. Mm-hmm. Now, it's not a literal adaptation, and it's not even in that same linear format. And the primary reason for that is if you read a lot of novels, a lot of novels have the first 50 to 100 pages, which is just a crazy amount of setup. Right. Can you imagine yeah. doing a six-issue comic series where the first two issues are nothing set up and nothing really happens? Right. You know, I, I mean, people would quit. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, that's one of those things where I, I get irritated when I read. There are certain comic writers, I won't name them, but <laughs> I don't like reading individually. Right. But I love to read their graphic novels because you read their graphic novels, they read like novels, you know, because the right. first, try to read the, you know, the first, I mean, I mean, you probably know from reading comics kind of who I'm talking about, but you read some of these first <laughs> issues of these people and they're like, nothing happens. Right. You know, then you get into like the third and fourth issue and it's like, oh shit, this is badass. Yeah. But uh, I, I, I just, they just don't write good serialized content, you know, and for me, right. it's always comics is kind of a combination of film and TV writing. You yeah. write the graphic novel as if it's a film but you write each issue as if it's a TV show. Right. You know, so, and then you basically, so you're writing like five or six episodes of TV that theoretically lend together to tell you the story of your film. You right. know, I mean, that's that's kind of the way we write, or at least the way I write. Yeah, yeah. Gotcha. Um, and, and staying in, in the film world, I know that uh, you also have another uh, book from your pilot season. I think it was back in 2011, The Theory of Everything, which um, Fox picked up, correct? Yeah, Fox uh, Fox Proper picked it up uh, yeah. a little over a year ago. Um, that was a book that Dan Jinks and company had brought to us. Uh, one of the execs over there, a guy named Nick Nantel, brought the property and said, we're interested in doing this as a comic. Um, we collectively attached a guy named Dan Casey, who's a feature writer, to write the comic and to write the uh, screenplay. Hmm. Um, and then we went in and pitched it. And, uh, you know, we did a couple pitches, and then... Uh, it, I tell you, man, the Hollywood thing, I never quite understand. Cause I'll, I'll go on a meeting and some guy will be talking about how badly he wants it and then, that, you know, doesn't really want it at all. And then you meet with someone else and like, they, they look like they're completely disinterested and then they right. buy it. Right, right, right. <laughs> so it's, it's a weird game. I just, you know, whatever. But, uh, you know, we just do the song and dance. We put together the pitch, went out with, with Dan and myself and Dan Casey and, and Dan Jinks. And we all went and pitched it around town, and Fox bought it. So it was uh, a very happy thing. And Dan wrote a uh, first draft that came in a few months ago, and uh, we all sort of figured out. In many cases, I think this happens where when you do a first draft of a film, you kind of realize what some of the premises of your outline were wrong. Right. Um, And uh, so now he's going back and uh, and rewriting. It's not a page one rewrite, but uh, there's some significant... uh, third act re- revisions that uh, I, I like a lot. And a lot of those, you know, honestly came from the notes from Fox. And I'm one of those guys that's very critical of, you know, studio notes. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, in this case, Fox came in and, and, uh, and which makes me happy because it, it seems like they actually genuinely want it. I think, you know, they're, 
they've got the, they've got sort of the, some of the Marvel stuff, and uh, I think they need they need some franchises, and right. this this they see as a potential sort of science fiction franchise, um, and I know they want one, so we're hoping. Uh, I, you know how this is; it's so script dependent. I mean, when Dan yeah. the next script will probably come in in the next couple months, uh, and I think Dan has one more step. So if it's awesome, they'll pay him probably for the next step to rewrite, or 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 they'll just accept it, which they never seem to do. Um, but, uh, and then, uh, you know, we'll go from there. You know, if it comes in and I don't like it, they'll probably kick it back to us. Right. Right. Now, Dan Casey, who, who wrote the comic and is writing the script, where, how did he become affiliated with it? Was he a comic writer first? Was he a screenwriter first? And how did he get involved with Uh, you guys? It's, you know, that that happens actually a lot. I mean, if you look at a lot of these sort of independent comics that are coming out from the, the mid tier publishers, a lot of those are written by film and TV writers, Mm -hmm. names you've not heard of before. And the reason is because, you know, a lot of times agents or managers and people uh, say, Hey, I have a client. Would you be interested in talking to him about his project? Uh, I think I met Dan Casey through Circle of Confusion, who also manages me and Mark. Mm -hmm. And uh, they also manage Dan Casey. So that was sort of a a union of, uh, on on the management side, Circle of Confusion that put us all together and in the same room. And, uh, and Nick Nantel and the guys over at Dan Jinx's Mm -hmm. company really liked uh, Dan and his take. So uh, we just went for it. Right. So he was a screenwriter originally, initially. Yeah, he uh, he had written a couple. Of, I'm, not, I'm not sure if he's written anything that has been made. I know he's written some things that has been sold. Right, um, but, but he had never and, written and, comics before. And no, this is his first comic. Okay. I, I worked with him to write the comic. Gotcha. And, that uh, that was my question. He, yeah, yeah. They, I don't think he's actually written another comic either. He wrote this, and that may be his one and only comic. <laughs> right. So you had? Did you? had to walk him through the process and what was that like you know walking a uh, screenwriter through the process it's a whole different medium really yeah it was uh with him it worked out pretty easily i i, I think you know I, he young you know honestly it's one of those things i hate to be ageist because i'm getting to be old but uh <laughs> the younger these guys are it seems the more malleable they are right you know you get a guy who's been writing screenplays for 30 years you know and, and, sure. and i have sometimes difficulty working with those guys in the format because they don't know how to you know update it but uh, Dan was uh, very malleable, cranked it out. You know, we worked through the kinks. And, you know, I think for us, we, just, I, we send in a bunch of scripts. You know, here's, here's a Ron Marr script. Here's a this script. Here's a Mark Wade script. Here's, here's a script I wrote. You know, uh, this is how we want them, and this is how we do it for the artists. Mm-hmm. So, and a lot of these guys, you know, and those guys all write full scripts, which is I, I do not. I, I loathe writing full scripts, um, which, which is actually more work for me, but I prefer it that way. I think the collaborative work ends up being better for it sure. uh, with the artist, if you have the right artist. But uh, every film or TV writer I've ever worked with always writes full scripts. Gotcha. And so you prefer like the old Marvel plot style? Oh, I do. Cause for me, uh, I, I, I have to carve out time to script, but right. for plots, I kind of work in advance off of outlines and I kind of know what I'm doing. And if I'm going to rush and, you know, I'm working on six different things in, in any given point. So right. I can crank out a plot to get to an artist very quickly, like in an right. afternoon. So it takes me days and days and days to finish the final script and do all the work on that. Right. Um, so, you know, it's just, it, it works. It allows me sort of that, that freedom. Um, and uh, I, I kind of, you know, it's weird for me. I think I could write full scripts and I've written certainly some stuck sure. screenplays and some pilots for television. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I, like it better this way. And uh, I think part of it is I work with artists that tend to be a little more freewheeling. 
Mm-hmm. You know, like Stefan Sedgwick, the uh, painter that I worked with on After 99, um, he would, I don't think he'd work off of a full script. He also wouldn't do a book like Think Tank where there's a lot of reference. Right. I mean, he, if you actually read the plots I give him, uh, you know, a 20, 22 page book, my plots to him are maybe three pages. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just like, here's pages one to five, this is the scene. You know, make sure you hit this highlight, you know. And right. for Rosanna, I could all on think that it's different because uh, there's a lot of reference mm-hmm. and a lot of stuff like that. But even even with him on those books and all the links I give him, I've been working with him so long, I kind of know what he's going to do. And uh, I let him do his thing because he's also a good storyteller. Right. You know? on, on the Tales of Honor book, it was a whole different animal because that uh, I was working with a Korean artist who doesn't speak English through a translator. Oh. Um, and uh, so those... Plots. I mean, I think the Tales of Honor number one plot is 28 pages, and there's oh. no dialogue in it. Wow. And it's full <laughs> of links and embedded images. And, right. Because honestly, when you're talking to someone internationally, uh, a picture is a thousand words, you know? Yeah, and yeah. so I would just say, uh, this is the angle I'm looking for, and, it looks, and this is kind of what it looks like. You know, right, do this right. a bit. Just find whatever it is on the internet and link it through and say, draw it like this, but choice it like this, and do that. Um, but... Uh, so every every you know you got to adapt to each project, but uh, for me time wise, I just it's it, it's more manageable for me to write the way I do. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, and talking about your baby think tank, I know you're uh, going on hiatus and you're gonna relaunch in color. What can we expect? Well, I think we're going to put a little bit of time between the end. Twelve just came out, which ends volume three. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're, we had already started working on a one shot story called Think Tank Fun with PTSD, mm-hmm. uh, which we're not making fun of post-traumatic stress syndrome. It's actually, right. uh, I was talking to Rasan about this. Uh, he just moved to Germany, so we were talking on Skype. And uh, we were talking about how this actually will be the funniest and the saddest issue we've ever done in the same issue. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, and so I, and that's quite a thing to say, and maybe I'm full of shit, but uh, I, I, I <laughs> it's, it's fairly interesting. We're not making fun of PTSD. Sure. Um, but... Uh, no, I, I so that book is, is kind of a labor of, of love, and I think, you know, for us, we had sort of reached a certain level of sales that uh, was sustainable, but uh, frustrating, because, you know, I mean, I, I, you know, I've worked on projects, and I've gotten mixed reviews on things before, but on this project, I got like hundreds, hundreds, literally hundreds of positive reviews, uh, and virtually no negative reviews, and the sales just never seemed to go up. So it got kind of frustrating, and Rasan and I would talk about this sort of endlessly, and then we said, you know, I wonder if it's color. You know, and, and I went into a retailer in Las Vegas, yeah. and uh, I, my parents lived there, and I, I walked into a store, and he said he didn't carry a think tank. And uh, I asked him why, and he said, well, it's not in color. And I'm like, well, do you really think that affects sales? He's like, and, and then I, as I'm saying this, I look on the wall behind his head, and there's all these Walking Dead books on the wall. Right. And I'm like, well, what about those? Those are all black and white. And he's like, well, and then, you know what he says to me? He turns around and says, look, I says, well, I'll get yourself a TV show and I'll put it on the wall. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'm like, oh, thanks, dude. You know, it was kind of, and I get it. I mean, for a retailer, it's sure. easy to sell Walking Dead now. Yeah, you yeah. Know? yeah. It's hard to sell think tanks. Right, right. No, I got you. And, you know, as we were talking before, you know, it's 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 also a really smart book. And, you know, as, as strange as that is to say, sometimes, you know, when, when things are that smart, uh, you know, it becomes a, a little bit diffi- more difficult to sell when it's not just superheroes punching each other. You know what I mean? Not that, you know, a majority of books are like that, but um, when you have... Yeah, I mean, we were, 
I, I, I agree with you on that. I, I think that the possible, you know, there's certainly action and there's certainly intrigue. Sure. And to me, there's a lot of stuff going on. But, uh, you know, some of the most exciting dramatic moments to me are, are the dudes just kind of sitting there yeah. um, talking about stuff. And uh, I kind of liken it, you know, and I'm not claiming to be on anywhere near level Quentin Tarantino's level, but that uh, in, in Inglorious Bastards, I just love that scene with Christoph Waltz when he was the Nazi guy going in and they were talking in the three languages. And, oh, you know, yeah, yeah. pretty much like a 20-minute sequence and nothing happened but these dudes were talking to each other. But there was this enormous, you know, sense of, oh, shit, you know. Right, and right. Uh, this, this tension was so great and this, the acting was so great. But, uh, yeah, you know, I think it, it's, it's the subject material. I think it's an atypical book. And uh, look, I'm I'm glad we got 12 issues out. If you remember when I first started talking about this book, we thought it was going to be a four issue thing. I was doing it just to kind of get it out there. Mm-hmm. And uh, then there was a reaction to it. I mean, doing it in black and white initially was to save cost. Um, and then when we realized that we might actually have something that was worthwhile continuing, uh, you know, we really went for it. Yeah. And uh, it's just it's, it's it's look and everything's relative. I mean, that book certainly sold pretty well comparatively to some and mm-hmm. not as good as to others. You know, if you take out, this is the thing I always tell people, take out of the top 300, every Marvel icon book, okay, right. is, you know, the Spider-Man, the yeah, X-Men, yeah. take out all the Marvel and DC icon books. You take out every licensed property that's based on a film or a TV or a video game franchise. Mm-hmm. And there's not a lot left. Right. You know, I mean, once you get down, uh, I, I think you probably, I'm not even sure where you'd be. I'm not sure if there's a single book in the top 100 that's even that could say it, does, it doesn't fit one of those categories. So, right, right. you know, in a competitive market, you got Marvel and DC, you know, doing their thing. You got Valiant trying to shake everybody. It's a very, you know, compacted or impacted marketplace right now. So it's hard to, uh, to get attention. And, right. uh, the point being is, yes, we're going to uh, relaunch the look in color. We're going to put a little time between <coughs> the ending of these and the new one. And, uh, look, if, if we get another six out in color and that's all we get, that's fine with me. I mean, I'll, I'll be happy with that at this point. I mean, right. I, I love the character. I love the storylines. But there's a million other stories and ideas in my head. Sure. So. Sure. Um, and uh, the uh, Top Cow talent hunt, which you uh, – it just – ended right last at the end yes. of the year um first off i think you're you're absolutely a, a santa claus in the industry which if aspiring comic book writers aren't taking advantage of the talent hunt they're absolutely crazy because it's one of the few ways you can break into the industry with a spec script so to speak but i think you're also yeah. crazy because how many submissions did you get this year how many did you get last year i mean, I mean uh and- we got more last year than this year oh, we got okay. uh 800 written submissions last year. We got 600 written submissions this year. And uh, how do you go through all these and, like, you send out, you know, critiques on all? I mean, you're insane. Well, that was the mistake of last year was I read them all for yeah. most of them, and yeah. I told people we would give them feedback. Yeah. Uh, this year, I'm writing three – I'm writing 60 to 80 pages a month. I yeah. have time to read them, unfortunately. Yeah. I wanted to do it, so I've got Ryan and a couple of the guys reading them. They're going to narrow it down to like a top 30 or 40. Yeah. I'll buzz through those in the weekend, and we'll pick the winners. Mark picks the artist, so that's all easy. Um, and, uh, you know, this year, and I learned a lot from doing it last year. Mm-hmm. I mean, this year, we're, but we actually expanded. I mean, last year there were two winners, and I expanded to a third. But this year we said there's going to be four winners, one mm-hmm. of which would be a female team. Uh, and then also we would have a 10 runners-up that would write a separate 
story for an anthology book we would publish. So there's actually 14 different writers uh, that are going to have the opportunity to uh, win. Uh, and I did that because I wanted to have more opportunity to get people, you know, to, to publish. Right, but which the, is uh, awesome. Just awesome. You, that's such a, such a gift you're giving these people, you know, aspiring writers. And, it, and it's funny to me. And that, the funny thing is I did it because uh, there were so many yeah. uh, of the submissions last year that were good. I mean, I, I'm okay. on record saying that I got down to about 30 of them that I thought these are all people that could be professional quality comic book writers right now. Right. And, and that I, I, I was actually saddened by that because, sure. uh, I, I look at an industry where we rehash the same writers over and over and over, right. you know, I mean, it's the same, you know, 25, 30 guys and two girls or how, however many it is. <laughs> right. And you see these names on everything every month, you know? Right. And then the problem is people live a long time and, and you can have long careers. I mean, there's some of these guys have been writing comics for 30 years and they're still and, doing it. And they write like each and they write, three books each. Right. So what are you going to do? You right. know, I mean, there's that, that prevents, uh, opportunity for so many people. And occasionally you'll see a new name. Like, uh, I don't read a lot of Marvel and DC books anymore. Mm-hmm. I, I, I sort of skimmed through them, but, uh, there's this new guy, Charles soul. I just discovered that I, I think he's a great writer. I don't know where he came from. Just out of left field. He's been around for a few years now, but one of the first few names I've seen out on the Marvel and DC side, I'm curious how he broke in. Um, I actually don't know. But um, yeah, I don't I'm a know. fan of his work. Yeah, no, he did cool. a book called Letter Forty Four, and I'm a fan of it. But uh, you know, you go back two, three years. That guy, I don't believe that guy existed a few years ago in comics. Cool. No, it's good to hear stories <laughs> like that. You know. So he'd um, be a good guest, by the way. Yeah. No, I'll definitely have to have to look him up. <laughs> say, you, say you recommended him. Um, yeah. Now, I guess just lastly is uh, the talent hunt. Uh, when is when you announcing the talent hunt and any special plans for next year? I mean, granted, it's still a year away. You probably don't even want to think about it, but are you going to make any changes that have come to mind already? Yeah, I think next year, um, I, I don't know that we'll do 14. Um, okay. yeah, you know, I was a little disappointed that we literally, literally quadrupled the number of winners and had fewer entries. Sure. You know, I think, and there were a lot of, you know, I think some of the people that put a lot of effort into it first year and they didn't win. I, I, I get that. People yeah, are frustrated. Yeah. Um, but, uh, so for me, I, I, well, we're going to do it again next year. I think we're talking about maybe instead of doing it as Artifacts, which play DC, maybe doing it as Cyberforce or Aphrodite or in that universe. Right. Because we haven't done that. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of what we're emphasizing now, you know. So right. it, it could be interesting and, and it'd be a lot easier for me to uh, sort of incorporate some of that stuff. Because right now we're we're sort of scaling back on the Artifacts side of our universe, you know. Which way is continuing? Darkness mm-hmm. for now has been canceled. Mm-hmm. You know, Artifacts. It's sort of, eh, honestly, it's just got to continue right now to finish up the talent hunt. Right. And uh, we're doing Aphrodite 9, Tales of Honor, you know, Voice in the Dark. I've got two or three other miniseries projects I want to do. Mark's doing uh, Rise of the Magi, which is coming out as part of Free Comic Book Day. Right. Um, and his new book, um, which is my favorite thing he's done in the last forever. Um, I, I really like that concept and those characters. And the artist he's working with is is fantabulous it's a it's a woman too her name's sumai keskin i think she's an italian not italian i'm sorry she's a uh istanbul what is that turkey she's a turkish asian woman really <laughs> yeah it's an interesting uh and interesting. she's a fantastic artist um and does a really unique style and i i've never heard of an asian person living in turkey so that was interesting for me to have a conversation with her right. um, but uh so I'm looking forward to that book, and uh, yeah, I mean, 
Top Cow, we've always only done four or five books, kind of kept it mellow. I don't understand why more publishers don't do talent hunt-esque kind of things. Um, it is kind of a win-win. I mean, uh, on, on our end, we get more people buying and reading our books because sure. they want to research it. Yeah, you yeah. know, and uh, uh, we also, uh, you know, I, we get access to people that we don't have to pay as much as uh, we would have to pay like a Mark Wade, you know. Right, um, right. And uh, and it's it's uh, there's a lot of good karma in it, you know. Yeah, you're so, giving a lot of people their break. It's a win-win-win, and uh, you know, I'm hoping I'll be able to look back in a few years and see that one or two of these people that, that got their shot here are, are actually actively one of the people in the herd, you know, in the, in the comics writing fold. Right. Uh, that would make, that would make me happy. I, I you know, cause I look at Marvel and DC and right now all the top books are populated by image created artists. You know what right. I mean? So right. all these guys that came from top cow or from extreme or from sure. McFarlane, all these books have artists that we found on the road. So yeah. it's, it's, you know, it's not a lot of writers. Right. Right. But, uh, yeah, so we're definitely going to do it next year. Um, I will probably be announcing the winners of this last one in the next month. Um, cool. I just was given a flash drive uh, yesterday that had the top 30 or 40 writer submissions on it, and I'm not going to have a chance to read those until this weekend. Um, and I don't know. It, it might be another two, couple weeks before I pick the uh, four winners and the 10 runner-ups. So right. by the end, I would, I would say by the end of March, we'll make the announcement. So everyone should pay attention. Gotcha. Um, now I know you got to go. So the last quick thing, rapid fire, McDonald's or Burger King? Neither. I hate uh, fast food. Uh, I just asked that cause I know you worked at McDonald's a long, long time when you were like, that. Oh. <laughs> uh, soccer or football? Soccer. Okay. Are you more excited about Captain America, the winter soldier or guardians of the galaxy? Oh, wow. Uh, actually guardians of the galaxy, man. I'm excited to see rocket raccoon suit your people. Yeah. And cooler sound, an echo or reverb? Definitely a reverb. Nice, nice. Um, well, that's all the time we have for today. Thanks for joining me again, Matt. Always a pleasure. Cool. You, Thank you for having me, Kevin. Yeah, and you can follow Matt on Twitter at Top Cow Matt, And please visit our website at scriptsandscribes.com for more information on all of our guests archived podcasts and lots of other great written interviews and information on writing and if you have questions about the craft or business of writing you can send us an email to ask at scriptsandscribes.com or send us a tweet to at scriptscribes there's no and in the middle there just at scriptscribes thanks for listening